The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. We're, we're looking at the science of psychology. Um, science Week, by the way, of course, taking place from 13th to 20th November at the moment. Uh, loads of events all the way around the country. So if you're interested in this kind of thing or any other things related to science, sfi.ie is where you can uh, find out more. But when we're talking about the science of persuasion, there is a man from uh, County Down who uh, he started, I think, University of Ulster, maybe it was Queen's, one of those universities. And he was lecturing and then he was doing more and more sort of corporate work and he ended up being effectively now living a life on a plane, going going around the world to the Fortune 500 type companies talking about the power of influence either one to one or on a one to a group or at large level and he is joining us this morning David Mead good morning Good morning, Anton. Lovely to join you. And you're right, I am travelling an awful lot. Greta Thunberg would be furious. This week, I've got seven flights, but I promise you, I'm definitely carbon cancelling them. Don't send me to jail. It is good to know that ethics is at the heart of all that you do, David. Now, you're going to teach us how to persuade people. If we want to get people to do what we want them to do, give us the kind of things we should be thinking about. There are so many simple, proven, science-backed principles that increase our likelihood of hearing the word yes. And you know, Anton, there's two ways of looking at this. Number one, we can use it to persuade others. But also, number two, we can look for it to spot and see when companies or politicians or anybody else who might be using them to influence us. And one of the big ones that is most powerful of all is herd mentality. As human beings, we want to do what most people are doing. That's when someone's trying to sell you toothpaste or face cream, they tell you that, so many thousands of people said this made a difference to their smile or to their skin. And it's the same reason why when we're logging on to buy a hotel room, oftentimes they might tell you that 12 people are looking at this same hotel room, seven people are looking at this same flight. When we feel like lots of people are doing it, then we're much more likely to move in that direction. But, you know, if you're a teacher or if you're a parent, then exactly the same technique can be used to shift the behavior of your kids or the people that you're managing at work as well. So, for instance, if you want your kid to be a little bit more active or study a little bit more, one of the best things that you can do is say that, well, you know, I was talking to the other mummies and they're saying that the other boys and girls are doing this five and six nights a week. If you feel like most people are doing it, then we want to do the same thing. My God, that seems counterintuitive because most parents spend their lives going, I don't care if Johnny's parents allow him to do X, Y or Z. I ain't Johnny's parents. Oh, well, look, at this point, we know Johnny's parents are horrible people, so we should be avoiding them <laughs> at the PTA anyway. But there's loads of different versions of these techniques. Another brilliant one is reciprocity. And it's based on this really simple psychological fact that goes all the way back to prehistoric times. And it basically suggests that as human beings, we are much more likely to give back to the people who give something to us first. And we think that it probably literally goes back to the cavemen. If, let's say, you had killed a bison, dragged it all the way back to your community, you're not going to be able to eat that entire bison. So the right thing to do is to chop it up and give it to the rest of the community so that if, let's say, three or four weeks from now, you haven't killed anything, when they bring something back, they'll share it with you. It's almost like one of the anthropologists who researched this said, it's a little bit like you share that bison out, you're depositing in the bank account of someone else's belly, and in the future, you might be able to withdraw upon it. And companies use this brilliantly today with free gifts, free trials, free offers. But the sector that does this better than anyone else is the charity sector. If you've ever received an envelope that had free stickers, a free pen, a fridge magnet, or a highlighter pen in it, 
And that is not just there as a free gift. We know that when you receive something physical and tangible, it ticks a little box inside our head that tells us that we should be giving something back. And, you know, for years, people have complained and said, oh, charities, they shouldn't be sending out this, that and the other. I remember my mum told me once if they stopped sending out free pens, they would have cancer solved by now. (laughs) We know that when those things come in envelopes, actually, it ticks a little box and makes us want to give something back because as human beings, we're really... Really predictable. Does that, does the power of particularly Irish cynicism not overwhelm that? Do people not get that initial gift, whether it be from a corporate or a charity or an individual, and think, what are you driving at and why am I getting this? Don't get me wrong. There is a natural thing inside our DNA that makes us suspicious of not just government, not just charities, of flipping everybody, for goodness sake. However, there is also something that's inside us, and I I call it the wedding gift phenomenon. You know yourself as well as I do. Whether you like it or not, if an invitation comes through the door to that wedding, Anton, whether you go or not, whether you're alive or dead, whether you're in the country or not, you have to get a present. It's, it's, It's ingrained in us. And I also think that there is something about this notion that we don't want to feel like we're letting ourselves down or the people around us down. So even though we might be sceptical or cynical of it, we still play the game because we're programmed to do it. Well, having uh, spoken to you on, on matters like this before, you you advised a, a couple of additional pieces of further reading around and I did some of it. And one of the things that I found fascinating in relation to this in particular was you don't even have to like the person who gave you the gift. You can actively dislike them, but you are more likely to do them a favour if they've given you something, regardless of how much you enjoy their company. Absolutely. And, and another good example of that same principle in action is when we use what's called the authority principle. Now, companies use this by getting celebrities to endorse their perfume or their car or their watch or their razor blade, whatever it might be. Even if I don't particularly like David Beckham, I don't fancy David Beckham, I'm not a football fan, but somehow seeing him using that Gillette razor, it just it piques our interest. It makes it much more likely to stick inside our brain and we convince ourselves that because someone in authority, someone that is well-known, some that is respected and familiar, because they're doing it, well, there's a reasonable chance I should be doing the same thing. So uh, th- these principles are all, there are uh, there are seven of them in total, but the ones that really jump out are those. And, and for me, just to go back to the herd mentality one, because there are so many brilliant examples of this. Uh, obviously, the, the hotel room uh, one, when you're buying a hotel, is a, is a great example. But the government in the UK actually did a brilliant one. They were trying to increase the amount of tax revenue that they were taking in. And they realized that a huge amount of people were defaulting and sending in their tax payments two weeks and sometimes two months and maybe, worst case scenario, two years later than they should. All they did was they sent out letters and said, people in your postcode, over 80% of people get their tax paid on time. As a result, that increased the tax revenue by about 11% and led to billions and billions of more money inside the government coffers. So even though we're not all massive fans of paying tax, we're not all massive fans (laughs) of the government, but just because we think most people are doing it, ultimately that's what we end up doing as well. So herd principle is when you establish to somebody lots of people like you are doing this and they subconsciously decide, well, I better join that uh, flow and that group. Authority principle is somebody you respect. So little Johnny around the corner does his homework um, and he's on the A team in soccer. Same thing. If, if you admire them, you are more likely to emulate them. You said there's seven. Give us one more. 
Okay, I'll give you my favourite of the whole lot is scarcity. And the reason it's my favourite is because I used to use this all the time. Cast your mind back 15 years ago. I used to be a university lecturer, loved my job in the University of Ulster. And at the time, I tried to make it on my own. I left that job. I wanted to get a TV show, managed to get it up in the north on the Beeb. Big deal, by the way. It was watched by nearly 12 people every single week. So, you know, kind of a huge deal up here in Belfast. And then after that, I launched a theatre tour. Now, we had about 25,000 seats. Year one was an absolute catastrophe, didn't sell well at all. So I knew that I needed to use my own tools to sell more tickets. And what we used to do every single week was we would only release about 15 to 40 tickets in every venue. So it meant that, Anton, when you logged on to the theatre website, you realised, oh gosh, there's not that many seats left. I better crack on and get this. But the truth is, there were thousands and thousands of seats left. But we knew by trickle releasing them, it made it look like they were scarce. And the scarcity principle is incredibly powerful. The less of something that there is, the more likely we are to push the button. We did another experiment in a supermarket, two big jars of cookies, one was absolutely bountiful and full. One had only a tiny handful. We asked people to taste both of them side by side. They could do it in any order that they liked. And um, we asked them to rate it in terms of crispness, of chocolatiness, of fudginess, in terms of crunch and everything. And in every single one, the one that had fewer cookies in it was time and time again rated higher, tastier, uh, more delicious, more fresh, much more uh, luxurious in flavour. But you're probably one step ahead of me. They were exactly the same biscuit. We bought them out of a pound shop. They weren't particularly good quality. But because there was few of them, people thought, well, more people must like these. So scarce is better. Scarcity or perception of scarcity can make cookies taste different. It can make so many things uh, taste differently. Think about back, I, I'll not mention any brand names, but there's, a, there's two brand names in particular of teen and young attractive people clothing wear where they used to get people to queue outside the shop. There was ropes outside the shop, for goodness sake. And when you went inside, the place was empty and the lights were off. Uh, so you didn't realise how dire the clothes were. But when we see a queue outside something, we feel like, well, gosh, that must be desirable. That's why one of the biggest phone companies in the world, you know who they are, I do too. On launch day, day one, they always sell out of phones. So you end up having to wait six or eight phones for this little handset. Even though, come on, they're the most cash-rich organization in the world. Do you, does anybody listening to this believe that they don't have enough money to have enough phones on launch? They, are you mad? <laughs> of course they do. But they want that scarcity. They want people to fight for it, to join the queue. And ultimately, that makes us want to get the phone even more. And I know that because I'm talking into a brand one, brand new one now that I waited <laughs> seven and a half weeks for. David, I, I, what worries me slightly is we said there's seven. We've only covered three. We may have to try to drag you back if you are willing at some point. Um, always a great pleasure to talk to you, David. Really appreciate your time this morning. That is David Mead. And if you want to find out more about David Mead, you can go on to his uh, website, davidmead.co.uk. And there is a ton of information there about him and also the kind of things that he teaches. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.